Every life carries many difficult things, but often it's our fear and anxiety about those things and our memories and processing of them afterwards that actually hurts us the most. To paraphrase Shakespeare, the anxious person dies a thousand deaths. I imagine that's why scripture calls God's people more than any other command to not worry. Do not fear. Cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. And of course, that is easy to say and hard to do, especially when we feel anxiety pressing down on our chest like the foot of a dragon. But there are choices we can make, many of them pointed to clearly by scripture, that can strip anxiety of its power and strengthen our hearts in peace. This reality has become all the more significant with the advent of COVID-19. As worries about the coronavirus swept the globe, it became very clear very quickly that some of the most profound impacts of the disease would not only be physical and economic, but also emotional and psychological. That's why, as the virus began to spread, a webinar series from CAFO included topics not only like protocol for protecting vulnerable children or church support for foster and adoptive families by remote, but also an interview focused on fear and anxiety. Dr. Kurt Thompson joined us to help us understand what drives anxiety, what anxiety and fear do inside us, and a theology and psychology and practical choices of how we can confront it. I loved this conversation and I learned a great deal from Dr. Thompson. And we heard from many, many other people afterwards who felt the same. So we have packaged this conversation as a special episode of Justice and the Inner Life that includes that unforgettable conversation, overcoming anxiety in the era of coronavirus. to Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Together, we'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here is your host, Jed Medefit. Just a very warm welcome to all of you joining from all over the world. Uh, As many of you know, this is part of a CAFO webinar series titled Living, Loving, and Serving Well in the Era of Coronavirus. And today we are privileged to be joined by Dr. Kurt Thompson for today's focus on anxiety. The title is Overcoming Anxiety in the Era of Coronavirus. And so in just a few moments, we'll we'll jump into things uh, with Dr. Thompson. But uh, I I just wanted to start with a moment of just pausing and calming all of our hearts. Um, I think all of us are indeed feeling uh, at least some anxiety, even if we're not anxiety-prone people and uh, the world feels upside down in many ways, uh, and yet uh, we, we come to this conversation not first and foremost just that as an intellectual exercise, but, but ultimately realizing that we serve the God of peace and his good purpose for us, whether in times of storm or times of calm, is that we would walk in that peace and know it. And so I just want to start with that. And uh, so if you'd be willing, if you, if you want to, you could close your eyes or, and open your hands, or, or we could just... Um, just just be together in this moment and hear these words from Scripture. Fear not, for I am with you. 
Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are set on you because they trust in you. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Dear God, God of peace, we enter your presence together. We pray that you would teach us, that you would guide our thoughts and our understanding through this conversation. But most of all, we pray that your peace would indeed dwell in our hearts. We lift this up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, great. Well, as hopefully you all can see, uh, we are joined by Dr. Kurt Thompson. We are essentially neighbors here in Northern Virginia, but we are appropriately keeping our social distance. So we are uh, yeah. a computer's distance away here. Um, but uh, Kurt, welcome. So so thankful that you could join us. Um, as many of you know, Kurt is uh, the author of a number of excellent books, including Anatomy of the Soul and the Soul of Shame. He's a practicing psychiatrist uh, here in Northern Virginia and also speaks and writes extensively uh, and, and leads in so many ways right at the intersection of neurobiology and spiritual formation. And uh, so thank you for joining us today, Kurt. Thanks, Jed. It's a privilege to be with you and all the great folks at CAFO who I know are working so hard uh, to, to do what God's called them to do, in, and especially in the face of this uh, new and challenging time. Well, Kurt, let's, let's start right with, uh, with definitions and understanding. So can, can you help us grasp more fully what anxiety is, maybe both psychologically and neurobiologically? Sure. I mean, in some respects, uh, we, you know, you don't need a psychiatrist to, to define this. I'm sure all of our listeners have a sense of what it means to be anxious. Um, one of the ways that we describe it is that it is a certain kind of a fear response that we have, although in neuroscience, we tend to differentiate kind of a stark fear response that we have from this underlying sense of anxiety. But they have some things that are similar. And in the scriptures, we hear this command more than what I'm told is more frequent than any other to be not afraid, be not anxious, be not worried. And uh, one of the things that tends to happen when we are anxious is that we tend to move from the way that our brain works most effectively, which is through what we call our social engagement system. There is actually a system in the brain that is primed at birth to help the newborn and then eventually even we as adults to regulate our distresses primarily by connecting to other people. That's how the brain most effectively regulates its distress. But we've all had those moments when when we're by ourselves or on our own that distress can start to feel overwhelming and we drop into what we might call our sympathetic drive system, our flight or fight system. Now, it doesn't mean that we are always up to fisticuffs, but 
that fight or flight system is what tends to kick into gear even in very, very minor ways when we get anxious about the least little thing. We find ourselves becoming somewhat afraid. We become afraid of what the future might hold. We become afraid of losing all kinds of things, relationships not the least. And so it is our brainstem, that fight or flight mechanism that is not unlike what we see in reptiles, right? That a snake just scurries out of the way. That really gets activated along with our amygdala, these two very, very small pieces of tissue that sit more in the front of our brain. The amygdala and our brainstem tend to work in concert to look out for fear, protect us from fear. Most of the time that might be coming from a physical standpoint from things outside of ourselves, but it is also picking up on things and sensing things that is coming that, that are coming to us from inside our own selves. So the things that we worry about, the things that we think about, and not the least of which being what we're facing right now with the coronavirus. So we worry and our brain then tends to do two things. It tends to be disconnected within itself. It tends to kind of devolve to or default to the parts of our brain that are less sophisticated, the parts that are like snakes and lower mammals. And we also tend to be less connected to other people when we're anxious. My brain tends to, when it's left on its own, in its fear state, tends to continue to wrap itself around itself. I become more afraid. I become more isolated. And in my isolation, I become more afraid and it tends to snowball, which is why we then say that Neurobiologically and interpersonally, the ultimate, almost um, the, the the most significant thing that is in play when we become anxious isn't just about a frightening thing that is outside of us, whether it is a snake or whether it is a situation like the coronavirus. The thing that we are most anxious about ultimately is that those circumstances lead to disconnection. It is not good for man to be alone. It's the only thing in that creation narrative of the first two chapters of Genesis where God pronounces something that is not good. And we see that anxiety is actually ultimately about my sense of being disconnected or cut off from others and from myself, and not least of which being God himself. So, Kurt, that, that strikes me as immensely significant, understanding that the the essence of what we are afraid of, while there are certainly very real, very um, important things to, to be concerned about, whether it's uh, physical illness, whether it's loss of job, loss of income, that you're saying that underlying all of those fears, very often at least, is something that is deeper, that is a, a fear of brokenness of relationships and isolation. Is that right? That's right. I mean, the whole sense of uh, our notion of death, you know, when God says to the first couple, uh, don't eat of the fruit because in the day that you do, you will surely die. Uh, most uh, believers who are experts at paleontology and neurobiology and so forth would say that the death that the Hebrews were talking about then was not physical death so much as it was this sense of existential death, this death of being connected to others, that life is really to be found in my being connected to you. And when I sense you moving away, when I sense the job loss, when I sense whatever the things might be, those catastrophic events that I might imagine, those things ultimately have their power in the way that they could, you know, create situations in which I'm then disconnected from what it means for me to be seen, known, and loved. 
which is why I think it's so significant. I, I, I was thinking about the scripture that you read. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be afraid. That is a text that indicates that the shadow of death, like the threat of death, is a real thing. It is not something that is, we're, we're, we don't fear it because we're weak or because we're stupid. We fear it because it is a real thing. But what the text invites us to do is to pay attention to the other, pay attention to God who is with us in that. And in our paying attention to others and inviting others to be connected to us in the same way, we actually have a very powerful way of reducing our anxiety, despite what the circumstances around us are proving to be. So this is this is this question is moving maybe slightly to what might not be the most profound or most important things of all, but it's still very significant. What happens with our physical body when we are going into an anxious state? Exactly. And, uh, you know, many of our listeners might be there right now, quite literally. Um, one of the things that our flight or fight system does is that it ramps up our heart rate. It ramps up our respiratory rate, shallows our breathing. It tenses our muscles. It, te- it tends to send blood to those large muscle groups whose task it is to flee or to fight. And it also tends to move our thought processes out of a more receptive space being open and curious about others in the world to a more analytic space. I'm scanning the landscape. I'm looking for danger. I'm looking for the next thing that might be a threat to me. Those spaces, of course, are necessary if I'm going to look at a real threat and face that and deal with that. The problem is that those kinds of states of mind are really only helpful for us for short periods of time. We know that The stress that a brain experiences in short bursts when our fight or flight mechanism is really kind of hijacked or taking over the brain, those stress systems are actually helpful. The adrenal glands dump cortisol into the blood, dump what we call ACTH. It's another acronym for another uh, hormone that gets dumped into the blood that enables us to act in the short run for our safety and on our behalf. The problem is with anxiety, those States of the body that we just mentioned, my elevated heart rate, my elevated blood pressure, all those kinds of things, and the elevated hormones of stress, once they stick around the brain for longer than a period of a few hours to a few days, they actually begin to become toxic. And so we find that we are, uh, you know, we're at home worrying. And at the end of the day, we find we're actually more tired than we are on days that we went to work. We find that we're not concentrating as well. We find that we um, don't sleep as well. We find a number of different things that are taking place because of our physiologic response to this stress and the anxiety that is ensuing. Now, a large part of this, of course, is really taking place because we are disconnected from each other in the ways that we are. Now, it doesn't mean that we're disconnected from everyone because many of us are at home, hunkered down with others in our small circle. The challenge there, of course, is that we're now hunkered down with people that we aren't used to being hunkered down with in this same way, right? It's great to be in families where we can go away and go to school and to work and to these other places, come back and be around a dinner table and have all kinds of novel things to share and to talk about and to wrestle with. 
of course, there are parenting issues. There are all kinds of things that are taking place that are hard and difficult, but people have a way of moving away and coming back to moving away and coming back and bringing novelty into our homes. Novelty actually stimulates the brain. Novelty actually gives us something more to talk about. When we are together in the way that we are, the potential for boredom to ratchet up becomes greater because what else is there to talk about except the coronavirus and the fact that I've only seen these three people for the last 72 hours. And the challenge is that boredom makes us anxious. My brain needs to have stimulus, needs to have stimulation in order for me to be creative. And it is in being creative that I'm also not being anxious. When we are kind of in these spaces alone, there will be an ease with which we can drop into places of boredom that also tends to contribute to that, which is why there's some things that we can do actually to counterman that, uh, that we will probably get to later. Yes. Yeah. Let's, so we'll definitely come back to some of these themes in a little bit. So let's play this out a little bit now. So we talked about how uh, the anxious state, that elevated state, the ready for fight or flight for action is good initially to respond to threats. Um, and then that can we can sustain that for a period of time. Um, but after maybe several hours or maybe let's get to several days out now, maybe this has been going on for a couple of weeks and we have been living at, in that anxious, elevated state for, for a couple of weeks. What are we starting to, to see then? Well, as uh, I think mentioned earlier, um, I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it's really quite striking. You know, if, at first glance, everybody, uh, because the closest thing that we've had to this in terms of people being off of school and work is a uh, like it's a bad snow day here on the East Coast. On occasion, as you know, we might have a you know, if we have a blizzard that comes through, we might be off for a week from school. And at first glance, of course, it's all kind of fun and games and it's novel and people are out enjoying this. But we know that once we've been in the house with our kids for 10 days after even like a snow day, like it starts to get more difficult. People get more irritable with each other. People become uh, less patient. People have fewer things because we have fewer things to talk about. And and we literally are less mobile. One of the things that anxiety tends to do is it, as, as we were mentioning earlier, it tends to shift the brain to a, to a more isolated set of neural networks that are working. There's less of the brain that's actually involved when we're anxious, if that makes sense. That means that like less of my brain is active. That also tends to have me in a place where I am less physically active. And when I am less physically active, I tend to reinforce my anxiety. Over a period of 10, 10, you know, 10, 20, 30 days, those stress hormones tend to continue to snowball. And so our anxiety, unless we take particular intentional action to combat it, will tend to want to drive us further into isolation. One of the things that we know about human beings is that when we are disconnected from others, I will tend to do those things in the short run that will reduce my anxiety exponentially and expeditiously, as quickly as possible to the greatest degree as possible. The problem with that, of course, is that sometimes the things that I do that reduce my anxiety very, very quickly in the long run, only tend to increase my anxiety. 
So we find people in these situations doing things like, like we, we binge watch TV. We binge eat. We do arrange it. We sit in our houses. We don't move. There are a lot of things that we do that over the long haul tend to only increase our state of isolation and our subjective sense of anxiety, which in the, and, and then in the long run does not give me a more creative, uh, hopeful outlook about long-term circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, so true. And we'll, we'll talk a little more about technology later on as well. But I, I would just say even, you know, con- confession here that I've, I notice when I feel anxious, and this is always, but maybe particularly now, one of the first places I would turn is to my phone. And looking at it actually does briefly, it calms me down. I think maybe in part because it's distracting me from whatever it was I was ruminating on. Um, it is stimulating. Uh, and so there's a calming effect initially, but as soon as that is gone, that moment is gone. I'm I'm ultimately more anxious right. than ever. You know, I, I um, for our listeners, I just this morning um, posted an essay on my website that people can find at kurtthompsonmd.com on this on the topic of, of the virus. And one of the things that I mentioned in the essay is that uh, the virus and the disease are not just causing anxiety i think if they are revealing it they are as much uh shedding a light on who we are as much as they are causing in some way shape or form us to become certain things and as you've mentioned it we are a people who um as i as i tell people you know i mean i am now i am now primed in such a way, no pun intended, that, you know, my orders from Amazon show up at my door before I even order them now. I mean, that's, that's how quickly I expect things to be done for me. And our, our technology does in some respects put us in a position in which we can have short term reductions in our anxiety, though that our brain knows because it's not having to do any work. That's the other thing about you know, kind of our more addictive side of behaviors. I don't really have to do any work to look at my phone other than to turn my attention to it. The phone is doing all the work. Um, one of the things that we uh, talk about when it comes to anxiety is that anxiety as a phenomenon is what we would call a future state phenomenon as far as the brain is concerned. I'm anxious about things that I expect are coming in the future, whether that's a near future or 10 years from now or whenever. The more I practice being in the present moment, the less able I am to actually be anxious. I interrupt my brain's capacity to be anxious to the degree that I am practicing being in the present moment. Turning to my phone very briefly certainly is an act of agency in which I turn my attention to something, but I am not then having to do anything other than just to watch the phone. I'm not having to work at being with the phone. I'm just having to like look at it. The notion of being in the present moment, as we'll talk about in in, soon, um, requires us to actually do work. It requires us to put energy into what we're paying attention to that is right before us. And in so doing, we re-engage our middle prefrontal cortex. We drive the neural circuitry out of our brainstem, away from our amygdala, away from those circuits that are sending up signals of terror and fear, and into the circuits of my brain that are responsible for creating 
goodness and beauty, even even in the face of things that are genuinely frightening. Yes. Yeah. It. It. You know. All this makes me think of a comparison to cigarettes. Now, I. I've never been addicted to cigarettes, but I, I could imagine the feeling being very similar to how I feel about my phone, that it actually provides a quick shortcut to calm. And it, it does provide a certain calm in the short run, but but as soon as its effect is over, it actually leaves me more vulnerable to the anxiety I felt prior to smoking. And uh, so that's right. I mean, it's it's I think that you're um your mention of cigarettes and tobacco is poignant in that uh, it's generally considered that if a person is smoking more than about three or four cigarettes a day, mostly what they're doing is just simply trying to prevent withdrawal from it, from the addiction process. They're just preventing withdrawal. And in many respects, uh, our phones now are such that uh, the frequency with which we look at them is really just uh, a withdrawal preventative. And to your point, um, we, when we get anxious, we then tend to practice the things that we always do that tend to help us be less anxious. And if I am, if I have that kind of a relationship with a device, so much of my activity with it really is just a withdrawal prevention activity. And so unfortunately, the devices themselves, to the degree that they can be helpful, like they are hopefully being helpful even at this moment for all the audience that's part of this, um, they also tend to, you know, can, can create challenges for us as well. I mean, one of the things that's happening right now, hopefully, is that we are all engaged in this conversation. Obviously, you and I are the ones who are having it. Now, what's likely happening is that people who are watching, you and me have this conversation, are simultaneously, many of them are, are checking their phones the whole time that they're watching this. And um, that, that's not a critique or a criticism. It's just it's that difficult for us to put those away because they become so much a part of our landscape. But also unwittingly, they have become these um, anxiety creating garden tools, if you will, that really um, foster that in us. Let's talk for a moment about the long term impacts of a sustained anxious state. So, uh, you know, I, I know there's a lot of research that looks at long term uh, stress, anxiety. What what do we see in those studies that the consequences for our bodies, our minds, hearts are? Well, I think um, some would say that this is like unto living in a somewhat long term state of um, nutritional deprivation. Right. That there, if you, if one, you know, if you don't take in vitamin C for the next week or two, uh, it's probably you know, it's not you're not going to see a real problem with that. But if you had a sustained period of six months of no vitamin C you would start to see heightened, you know, um, rates of infection. You would see heightened rates of sleep deprivation. Now, all kinds of things would start to happen. The same thing can be said about the heightened levels of stress over a long period of time for the brain. Um, we tell people that long-term stress is really not so much like being run, having your brain run over by a truck, um, but it's more like being run over by a bicyclist a thousand times. And after a while, you know, I think I'd rather just, if, if I knew that every day I was going to get hit 10 times by a bicyclist, like for the next nine months, I think I'd rather take the truck and like get in and out of the hospital in six weeks and be done with it. But, um, that's not how this is, this is playing out. I mean, this scenario, it, it appears at this point, if, if the data and the curves of the, of the spread are, are accurate, you know, this could be with us for a period of several months. 
Um, and, and this, and by this, I don't mean in this particular state of this kind of isolation, but I mean, just, just the awareness of the, the presence of the virus and so forth, which tends to cause this kind of sense, this undercurrent of anxiety that people are going to walk around with. And all the more reason then for us to recognize it as these, uh, this long-term risk of greater, greater uh, levels of infection. And by that, I don't even mean, I don't mean the coronavirus. I mean, just getting the common cold being run down. Greater risks, literally, for depression. One of the things that we say that depression is, is what happens to a brain when a person is no longer able to manage that which makes them anxious. And in this sense, anxiety and depression, though they are experienced neurophysiologically differently, they have a great deal, you know, they are on a continuum in some sense, in that when my brain is no longer able to regulate that which is distressing it, those symptoms that represent depressed states start to begin to emerge. And we have people who uh, have um, other underlying neuropsychiatric states that some of them have done well, but they can reemerge because this feels pretty traumatic for them. Um, people who have, especially um, people who've had post-traumatic stress situations in which they have felt really out of control of being able to have any agent, having no agency over their circumstances, this kind of a thing can reactivate those old neural circuits that represent implicit memory from those kinds of things. And again, all the more reason why, <clears throat> as we, you know, depending upon how long the situation extends itself, all the more reason for why it is important for us to, with intention, be making sure that we're being connected with other people. So you you alluded to this earlier, but um, you know, uh, biblical scholars tell us there may be no command given more frequently in Scripture than the command not to worry, don't give way to fear. Um, it, it is remarkable that although uh, anxiety feels so uh, uh, connected to modern life, that it really is is as ancient as humanity. That it's uh, it, it is not novel, even though. The coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 is indeed novel. Anxiety is, is not. How, how do you, as a psychiatrist, as a counselor who is rooted in scripture, how do you think theologically about fear and anxiety? Well, I, I, I tend to, um, it's a good question. I, you know, I, I, anxiety is primal. It is, it comes from the, it, it's, it's, it's emergence in our experience personally, uh, is deeply correlated with the activity of really primal parts of the brain. That's number one. It is, so it's not only old in terms of our own brainstem architecture, our brain architecture. It's also old in terms of human anthropology. Uh, we are afraid in ways that snakes are afraid, if you will. Uh, we are afraid in ways that a dog can be afraid. Uh, but the thing that does tend to set us apart is that we tend to be aware that we're afraid. We talk about that we're afraid. We we are all these things that we have deep connection with the rest of the created order with. And, but, and, and then, you know, we have this interesting story as as people of faith, as as Christians. We have this story in which as primal and as universal as fear is, we are made by a God and serve a God who, oddly enough, comes and says to us, don't be afraid. 
And, you know, I, I often, uh, I often think about the, the number of visitations that people in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, had from angels, from Gabriel and so forth. And one of the first things that they do is, is to say, be not afraid. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if you're telling me not to be afraid, then please don't show up in a way that scares me because they seem to be doing this all the time. They show up, they scare people and then say, don't be afraid. And I think there is a sense in which we are, we are, may we have these connections with lower animals. But I really do believe that fear is not just something that God tells us, like, don't do that. Don't be afraid. We are afraid, but I think that what God is doing, he's made us and he made us in the garden and he is calling us over the course, not just of each of our lives, but over the course of human history, God is calling us to become more and more and more like Jesus. If it is true that what St. If what St. Paul says is true, that we are being made into the image of Jesus. If what he says, these, these glorious words where he talks about how, you know, we will be revealed, like who we really are will be revealed on the day of his revealing. There is a sense in which I, I get that what God is wanting us to do is to grow up into his fullness. And to be mature means that we have to uh, take the actions that are necessary to not be afraid. We have to take the action to turn our attention toward relationship and away from isolation, away from those things that frighten us. Not being afraid is not just something that happens magically. It happens because we turn our attention on purpose, with intention, with practice over and over and over again toward Jesus, toward the people of faith who are also turning their gaze toward us. And we are not doing that as a way to ignore the world that is in front of us. We are not doing that to pretend that coronavirus doesn't exist. We are doing that as a way to say to evil, even in the, even in the presence of coronavirus, you do not get the last word. You do not get the opportunity to be, a, to, to, to frighten me. I will be prepared. I will take this on with all of its gravity. I'm not going to be Pollyanna about this. I'm not going to pretend this is easy. This is hard, but this is not something that my God is afraid of. And so neither will I be. And so as a, as a practitioner, what I want to say to patients is, um, I want the scriptures. I want the story of God. I want the Jesus of the gospels who is looking to all of us and saying, look at me. I want to look at him. And in so doing, I want to literally move the activity of my mind out of my brainstem out of just my limbic circuitry, away from being like a snake or a dog, and I want to become fully human. And that takes practice. Evil will use fear at every opportunity that it gets uh, in order to turn my attention away from others, away from God, away from being a force of creativity, and toward being someone who only sees the world as a problem to be fixed. And, oh, my goodness, I don't have what it takes to do that. I think biblically, um, uh, our invitation, our command to not be afraid is not just a command to do what God tells us to do or to uh, 
uh, you know, somehow magically change my state of mind and not be scared. It is a matter of practicing becoming like Jesus. It sounds like the concept of attention is really central in all that this, the, the decision of where we turn the headlamp on our head, the direction we, we turn and the choices we make with that. I, it makes me think of Dallas Willard, who, who had often emphasized that the, the, the choice of what we choose to put our focus on or attention towards really is our first fundamental freedom as a human. And uh, it, you know, on the anxiety side, I, I think a lot of the, the research, and you, you, could, you could, I'm sure, correct or add to this, but that suggests that anxiety is itself often a function of a, attention or, or the lack of capacity for attention because it, it allows all these secondary threats that are all around us, all of us, all the time to kind of come flooding in. We, we don't have the attentional capacity to focus on one thing and push those things away. Um, but, but the flip being, it sounds like you're saying the choice of turning our attention to something in particular to, and in specific terms to, to the God of all strength and comfort and peace, that, that, that is the fundamental choice at the heart of this. I I really think it is, Chad. And, um, I, I would say again that it doesn't mean that we're, you know, burying our heads in the sand. It doesn't mean that I'm pretending that a hard thing is not upon us. Uh, in the essay that I wrote, I cite that, um, you know, I, I, I think as I, I said that, you know, in Jeremiah's time, the prophet Jeremiah, COVID-19 came to the kingdom of Judah in the form of the Babylonian horde. And, um, you know, there was no pretending that there was no problem. There was a problem. What Jeremiah, though, did was he directed the people's attention to the work before them. The work before them was plant gardens, build houses, marry, have children, be a community together, and let your work as a community together be for the flourishing of the city around you. It did not pretend that hard things were not there, but it did call the people to pay attention to their God and to each other. And I think that uh, as we consider what we're paying attention to, when we talk about paying attention to God, there are practices, of course, that we can engage that enable each of us as individuals and as families to be more aware of the presence of God in our moment to moment lives. But one of the most effective ways that we do that is by connecting with each other. If we really do believe that we, the family and the household of faith, is the dwelling place of God. We are the, we are God's dwelling place between you and me, even over the internet, that God dwells in this interaction. Um, it is when I look upon the gaze of my friends and I see them seeing me and they have the same experience that I'm having the opportunity to see the look of Jesus seeing me. And when I'm actually able to name what I'm afraid of and to have someone say, that's really difficult. And I'm really sorry that your daughter's wedding has probably gotten postponed, which is true. Um, if we're able to say that, we're like, we're like, we're, we are really aware that you are on the verge of losing your job. I know people already for whom that is true. I know people who've had, and you probably know people who've had to not just lose their job, but they're laying people off. And who knows which one is the, of those things is worse. 
being present with them and saying, this is really hard, but I'm not leaving the room. And finding other ways, even as we're able to, uh, to materially be helpful for people is a crucial way for us to really, I think, fear not in the way that we are told throughout scripture to live. I think then also one of the things that's important is that, you know, we, we, we want to have answers to the questions. What do we actually do? I mean, you know, of course we don't want to be anxious, but what do we do about the, the, the virus and the isolation and so forth? One of the challenging things about um, anxiety is that when we are anxious, it's hard for us to think creatively. And uh, so part of what enables us to even imagine, well, what are some next steps that we can take to help our neighbors? One of the ways that we even come up with those ideas is first grounding ourselves in a sense and in in an awareness that we are connected as a community so that we are actually trying to construct those ideas corporately and uh, they have a greater opportunity of actually getting off the ground. What in terms of within your mind, Kurt, and, and people you're trying to help with anxiety, uh, what specific choices can help them to attend to the things, to pay attention to the things that really are calming and healing? Yeah. Um, uh, again, not to overdo this blog post that I offered. Uh, I've got uh, a dozen or so uh, concrete recommendations in this post for what people can do. Um, but I'll, I'll name a handful of them here. I think one of the first things that would be helpful for us is um, it would be important for people to start their day by immersing themselves in scripture, in prayer, and meditation practices, particularly those meditation practices of a contemplative nature. Um, doing work that allows us to be attuned, whether it's through our breathing, whether it's meditating on a particular passage of scripture. And by meditating, I don't mean thinking about. I mean literally allowing yourself to simply be there under the tree where Zacchaeus is perched and simply watch what happens. That kind of meditative presence, that kind of work, I think, is the first thing for us to do. So. Prayer, scripture, immersion in contemplative work is one thing. Another thing, just very fundamentally, is, and again, all these things are helpful aids in strengthening our attentional processes. Another thing for us to do is we can take some of those meditative options and practice them throughout the day for 60 seconds, two or three times throughout the day. Do some slow breathing work in which you are turning your attention away from what you're thinking about and simply being in the present moment. That's another one. Another one that's really important um, having to do with um, when, you know, when we are immobile, my tendency to rumination increases. And so I tell people it's, it would be a helpful thing for you to probably two or three times a day, go for a brisk five to 10 minute walk. You don't have to walk for 30 minutes or even for an hour. Go for five to 10 minutes, but do it two or three times a day to really allow your body to remind your mind that you have agency, that you have movement. And that kind of intentionality helps you practice, be disciplined in these other acts of intentionality. Some other things that I would say that would be helpful would be um, really 
practice restricting the way you are with your device, your phone, your your tablet, your laptop. And what I mean by that is, uh, first of all, um, really refrain from scrolling through social media. It doesn't mean that you can't be on social media and look at things, but um, really it, it would be helpful to forego scrolling through it. Be away from that. A second thing that would be related to this would be really refrain from watching national news too much. It really does not help for one to be glued to that. Um, that only tends to increase one's anxiety and tends to decrease our capacity for paying attention. It increases our distractibility. Another thing I would say as far as the devices are concerned would be when it's time for sleep at night, and this is, you know, this would almost be like un-American, right? But one of the things we talk about routinely with our patients anyway, long before this, is that it's really good for the brain uh, if your device is, if you if you have no contact with your device at least two hours before you go to bed. Now, I try not to be, even though that's what the data indicates, I try to like not be quite so draconian and say, okay, give it an hour, at least an hour before bedtime. Don't be on any devices, not your phone, not your computers. And then when you go to bed, put everything on a do not disturb signal. Make sure that you're not with your device. Your device is not with you when you're sleeping. And then here's the next thing I would, I would do. I learned this from my friend Andy Crouch. And I would say that the first thing that we do in the morning when we wake up, and again, because we're now not, go, many of us are not rushing off to work. I would suggest that before we access any technology in the morning, that we get out of bed, that we get dressed, and that we exit our house, even if it's just to be in our yard or someplace where we can have a five-minute interchange with nature. A five-minute interchange with nature. Seeing a tree, uh, it's getting warmer, so some people, maybe not in Minnesota, but some people can put their feet in the grass. Some people can be someplace where we are recognizing that we are paying attention to the created world, paying attention to something else that is an artifact, that is an object of beauty that God has also made that we are not in charge of, that reminds our minds that the God of all creation, not the God of destruction, but the God of all creation is not made anxious by this virus, is not surprised by this virus. Nothing about this is catching him off guard. And that we can be reminded to be attuned to that which is good and beautiful and true without denying the presence of these other things. And those are just some of the things I, I would say, uh, you know, the exercise and the sleep is are, are, are really some of the most important things. And then here's the last thing I would say. And this is where things get challenging in, in, a, in a big way for us in, in the sense of what we really may miss. I think it's really important for us to make a practice, make a plan to be in some form of communal worship once a week. Um, many of us, you know, our, our churches have gone to an online format to provide that. And I think it's going to be really important for us to uh, access that, be part of that. Some gatherings still might be happening if there are, you know, 10 or you know fewer than 10 people where people have the space to gather and worship together. And even in fact, some churches that there's their staff, like they got to bring a half dozen people in to, to pull this off. They're, they're doing that. But I think the point being 
But it's really crucially important for us to be reminded by being in the presence of others who are helping us remember the story that we believe that we're living in. And, you know, even right now, what we're doing right here is, um, is a testimony to the fact that technology is both beautiful, but it also reminds us that we're separate. And having those opportunities for gathering together are going to be crucially important. Um, one last way that we can do this and even also help our attention is, you know, pick, pick a couple of people every day that you're going to call and check in on. You're going to call or you're going to video chat with them and you're going to connect with them in such a way that such that all of these things that we've just talked about are ways to help us practice moving our attention to the present moment, being with those who are with us and so prevent anxiety in mm. a significant way. That's a treasure trove. All of those things. Um, yeah. You know, it, among, among many things that strikes me, Kurt, is the intertwinedness of our physical body with these emotional experiences of anxiety. I think often, uh, I mean, maybe this goes way back to the ancient Greeks and to Gnostic thought that kind of separated the brain and intellectual things from our physical experience. And yet everything we're talking about here shows there's a to uh, constant interplay between our physical bodies and states like anxiety. And so uh, even talking about the, the uh, physical activity, I know there's been quite a few studies showing that physical activity is, is immensely effective at reducing anxiety um, mm -hmm. and other bad mental states and difficult mental states. There was a, there was a 2016 study out of the University of Mississippi that showed that these are young, healthy adults. And just if they kind of force them to be sedentary for just one week, their measures of anxiety went up dramatically mm -hmm. over, over a single week of sedentary activity or lack of activity. And then one week later, going back to that activity, their, their anxiety levels dropped off again. So just your suggestion of just moving several times a day being a key part of this, even though it seems separate, seems physical, that's not emotional, it's physical. Those things are totally intertwined. And I, I think the same goes for nature too, right? When we're in the presence of what God has formed, something powerful happens uh, in our in our minds through those very physical things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about when it comes to anxiety and particularly where um, where where shame uh, kind of like uh, collaborates with it um, is this sense of immobility. So to your study from Mississippi that you're talking about, um, where we have where we find ourselves being immobilized, even physically, it reminds our brain that we do not have agency. We are not moving or acting in the world. And again, anxiety as an imagined future state, whether it's, you know, the test I have to take tomorrow for school or whether or not I'm going to keep my job, um, it activates this sense that I, I have no agency. I, that there's nothing I can do about this. I am immobilized from doing anything. And so again, when I practice being immobile, it's not then surprising that my anxiety rates will tend to escalate. And you're right. Um, one of the things that this is doing for us, it, it is um, kind of revealing once again 
another way that the virus is revealing as much as it is uh, causing. It reveals uh, the degree to which we have, without necessarily intending to, over the last many, many years, uh, continued to live in this dichotomous world where we think that what we feel and sense and image and think is a separate thing from our bodies. Our bodies are just like these containers that carry around our thinking capacities and that they're not really all that connected until, of course, we get anxious, until, of course, we uh, kind of find ourselves sitting and doing nothing, only to find that our anxiety becomes even greater. And um, again, it's it's reflective of what we read about in the scriptures that we, you know, we, we are mud out of which God has breathed, into which God has breathed the breath of life, and it is both our mud cells, our bodies, and our breath cells, our spirits that uh, make us fully human. You know, I just want to say an amen too to one of the things you mentioned a moment ago, and just encourage everyone listening to to consider this, among other things, are considering. But it's uh, you know the the practice of turning phones and screens off at, at least an hour before bed. I I had kind of had that as a daily rhythm half an hour before bed and and during lent i've i extended that a, a bit and mm-hmm. i will just say even even making it you know more uh, you know closer to 2 hours now it's amazing how much calmer i feel just as i ease into that and then it, it's easy, it's honestly been easier for me to fall asleep uh, i'm not keyed up i'm not thinking about some whether it's a news bit or something that i'm going to have to work on the next day uh, you know, it's it's my mind is calming. I'm more present with my wife, Rachel. Um, and, and then I, I've been leaving the phone off until after I wake up, spend time in the presence of Christ and uh, and scripture and, and then have breakfast with my kids. And and right. then I turn the phone back on because then the, the, the rush can come back in the news, you know, dealing with work. But I, I would just say that I think that's a gift that God wants each of us to receive. I would so strongly encourage everyone mm-hmm. on this to consider doing that. Yeah. I think of Jesus' words when he says, um, worry, how much more time will it add to your life? Will it add a moment more? And the answer is no. But in fact, it may take away moments from your life. In fact, because of what it does to us on our in our, in our stress response. But to your point about what it's like for you to turn your phone off and wait to turn it back on, you know, as it turns out, our lives uh, are never any poorer, but are frequently much richer when we are willing to refrain from and to restrain those particular devices and to allow them to occupy the space that would be good for them to occupy not to overextend their stay into areas where they don't belong. Again, this is not to suggest that they're not good things, but to say that they have a a helpful and useful space and they have a space into which they don't, they're, they're not helpful. And, um, uh, I, I, I love hearing what your, what, what that was like for you when you, um, took command of your device. So we only have a few minutes left and we've been trying to incorporate some of the questions that have been coming in through the Q and a I'd encourage uh, if any of you have have a, a question that you'd like to send in, please do. We'll, we'll try to get to at least a few of them. Kurt, I'll, I'll ask this one. Um, you know, thinking about our children, whether our own uh, children or adopted children, foster youth or, or other kids that we care about. And we if we sense they are feeling anxiety keenly during this time, 
what, what would you suggest that we can do to help them? Great question. I think uh, bearing in mind, uh, and, and this is this is what I think is 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 helpful and it, it is most important. It's when we're anxious, it's easy for us to imagine that, that that what I need to do is to solve the problem that is before me. That's what I need to do. My child is anxious. I need to get them to be not anxious because if they're not anxious, then I won't be anxious. So really, I'm just trying to get them to be like quiet so I'm not anxious anymore. When really, what I need is connection. What they need is connection. It's not just about solving a problem. It is about making connection. And so that I would say is needs to, it's helpful for that to move to the forefront of our attention. How do we do that? One way would be to acknowledge for our child to say, to, to begin to give them words, begin to say, what's this like for you? To say, are you afraid? Are you worried? Tell me more about that. And then I also think it is, um, it, it, it's helpful for us to, when they do talk about us, talk about that, to be able at developmentally appropriate, in developmentally appropriate ways, using developmentally appropriate language and images to, um, acknowledge to them that, yeah, this is scary. This, this does, this is not an easy time for us to be, you know, kind of entering into this. And I, and I can't overemphasize how when a parent says to a child in a calm voice, acknowledges to a child that what we're about, what we're facing is, is scary and hard. The child is not going to hear your words and suddenly become more afraid because you've acknowledged that it's scary. What that child's little brain is going to mostly be paying attention to is the tone of your voice, the look on your face, the eye contact that you have, and your presence is going to communicate to that child a certain tranquility, a certain peacefulness that they are incorporating through their right hemisphere while they take in the information that, oh, this is a scary thing. And so what's really interesting about this is that we help a child integrate a frightening situation in such a way that they're actually able to be at peace even in the middle of a frightening situation, primarily because what they have taken in from us is not just our acknowledgement that what we're addressing is scary, but what they have taken in is the very non-scary, kind, calm, peaceful presence and our willingness to walk into that space with them. I think another, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't have a running expert list of, of children's literature, but I think another way for us to, um, address some of these things is to find children's books that we can read together and at age appropriate times for, you know, children's books that, uh, that, um, like address things like fear. And again, not just that it's going to be the literature or the book that gives them information, but the fact that as a parent, I'm going to be with them. We're going to read something together. And in that something together, I'm both communicating what they're seeing on the page and my very presence as a way for them to experience a different response to something that is frightening. And then I think the last thing that we can do is um, when our children are, have, have demonstrated fear about something, it's, you know, as, as a parent, I'm, I'm like, I'm always eager for them to like stop being afraid so then I can like not be afraid and get on with my life. I think it's really helpful for us to then go back around, come back around and check in on them, come back and say, Hey, you know, that thing that we talked about earlier in the day, just want to see how you're doing with that. And we don't have to overdo it. It doesn't have to be every 10 minutes. But as a way to let our kids know that 
they are never very far away from my mind. And remembering that anxiety, the essence of anxiety is about isolation. The essence of anxiety is that I'm going to be abandoned. I'm going to be left alone. I'm going to be in some place where something hard is happening and nobody is coming to find me. Nobody is coming to be helpful for me. This is what anxiety is really primarily about. And when I go back to check in with my child, I'm actually, without them even having to ask for it, I am supplementing their brain, once again, their social engagement system. I am coming to find that. I am coming to turn that on. And as I turn on their social engagement system and they see me seeing them, it helps put their limbic circuitry and their brain stem more in a restful repose. And they can be less anxious, even in the middle of a thing that they know is frightening. Mm, I love that, Kurt. Well, I, it's just so clear to me from first to last, there's been two pillars of everything you've been been saying, it, it seems to me. One is attention and the other is connection. And attention being, you know, the the inability to focus can can cause us to live much more anxious lives. But but being focused and, and choosing, despite our sometimes feeble attentional capacities, choosing to focus on uh, on God, on Scripture, and and then also on those around us um, is a major part of of the the answer here. And and then building the connection in that, the, the it is of course the attention is the the antecedent to connection with other human beings. That is where we connect, and of course with our children most of all when they feel our full presence, our full attention upon them. That that is indeed telling them you are not alone. You're not isolated. I am with you and at your side. Right. Yeah, and I, I want to say something too to our viewers, Jed. I'm I'm I, I, like I'm aware of you know uh, the situation for parents who now suddenly, um, you know, two weeks ago were sending their children off to school, and now those parents are going to be having those children at home with them, perhaps indefinitely. And depending upon the school system that you're in, you may also have been kind of recruited to become now a full-time teacher. And I and I want to say that um, one of the things that's going to be really important, and especially for those who are who are who are caring in the foster system, caring in the adoption, who are who are in that system, who are working really hard with kids who are already sometimes compromised in terms of their attachments and so forth, where anxiety is, you know, it comes pretty easily. I want to say that, you know, if, if you're aware, if, 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 if any of your listeners, um, are aware of other parents who suddenly find themselves, you know, with your children, even in ways that are now made more difficult because they're always around. You, you don't get a break. You, there's no rhythm and hum to this. There's no separation. There's no way of, there's no cadence that we used to have that gave us the opportunity to catch our breath. They go off to school, they come back. And part of what enables us to really care for them deeply is the fact that you've actually had some time away from them. That may be gone. It's going to be crucially important for people who know us, who know that what we're doing is really hard to come to find us, to text us, to make a 60-second phone call. To those parents who are really in a hard place, to say, I know where you are, and I know that where you are is not easy, and I want you to know that I'm not leaving the room. 
I want you to know that we know this is not a walk in the park. That this is really hard. And it is in these really, really hard, broken places where God intends to do the most beautiful work. It is when we are the most anxious. It is on Good Friday that God does his biggest work. Because Easter's coming. And um, so I really, I, I, I think about our parents who are, now kind of being over overrun by their children, if you know, as it were, and uh, long for them to. Um, I, I, I long for others who know of those parents, and you know, we may be those parents, and we know those parents to uh, be at the ready to go and find those who need to hear now more than ever. Um, I'm not going to leave you alone. Hmm. Amen, Kurt. Thanks for joining this special edition of Justice in the Inner Life, and I hope that you enjoy Dr. Thompson's insights as much as I have, and most of all, that you're taking away truths that you can start living today. And I'd also like to mention, I'd love for you to join me and Dr. Thompson and many other wonderful leaders and thinkers and advocates and servants from all over the world to explore themes like these further at the CAFO 2020 Summit, which has been rescheduled for September 9 through 11 in Dallas. The theme is Small Matters. Little choices can remake a life. And we will be digging deep together into lots of different ways in which small decisions, little daily choices can make a very significant difference both within our own lives and for the children and families we serve, the organizations we work with, the people we work alongside. And uh, you can learn more about that and register for CAFO 2020 at the uh, CAFO website. But ultimately, I'd like to close here with Psalm 131, written 3,000 years ago by a king who struggled with fears and anxieties just like we do. And uh, if you're in a place where you're able to, feel free to close your eyes and open your hands. My heart is not proud, O Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Menefit, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit us online at CAFO.org.